Hi, Jim Kosho here from Dunlumber. Welcome to the Dunn Solutions Podcast, where we're committed to providing cutting-edge industry knowledge for the building contractor and trade professional. Today we'll hear from Dr. Eric Scroggins. Eric is an author, professional speaker, and leadership coach with degrees in business management and psychology. In today's podcast, Eric will share the following. Men and women who have used their vision to make a big impact, how to overcome cultural and behavioral obstacles, and provide tips on how to live at your personal and professional best. You can reach him at info at And for more information on attending future educational events, feel free to email me at gmc at dunlumber.com. First of all, I want to tell you how honored I am to be here and, and how much respect I have for what you do every single day. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I lost my remodeler's capability card when I was about 16 or 17 years old, somewhere in that vicinity. My mom and dad, my dad had been relocated to Portland, Oregon from Linden, Washington. And uh, we had our house up for sale. My dad had already been relocated there. And he did this remodeling project, this DIY remodeling project on our house and left this very ugly hole in the wall downstairs. And uh, so we had some people coming to see the house, to buy the house the next day. And being an inspiring, resourceful young man that I was at the time, I decided that that hole was inappropriate to be there. And so I needed to make it square and rectangular so that people would understand that it's on purpose, that there's you know, a purpose for this hole. So I had an old mentor of mine once tell me that whenever you're doing a cutting project, you measure twice and cut once, right? So I put that in place, began to measure the hole and, and, and figure out like where I was going to cut, took out the circular saw and went to cutting this hole, not taking into account that the main plastic water line was behind this hole and I cut right through it and flooded the basement of our house the night before people were coming to see it to buy it the next day. It was at that point I completely lost any ability to remodel anything. So uh, I stand here with a very different career path and you're all thankful. Or maybe you're not because there'd be lots of fix-it projects in my house that you could do. So thank you very much for the invitation of being here tonight. I, I hope tonight has three real, you, you have three real takeaways. First of all, that it's inspirational. Second of all, that it's informational. And third of all, that it gives you some sort of inclination to potentially take action and make some changes. So I want to talk to you about what I uh, learned a number of years ago, a few years ago, as I began to research what was the difference in the lives and the businesses of people who were phenomenally successful and those who were struggling to get by. What, what was a component? It really bothered me as I was working with people and looking at, at taking my own life to another level. What was the thing that some of these folks seemed to have this magic pill, so to speak, that just transformed their life, their business, the, the world around them? I, I began to do a ton of research. I was looking at people like Bill Gates and wondering, okay, what did he, what did he have? What was it about him that that yes, he was smart and he could program computers, but what was it, what component did he have in his life that was at play that caused him to have phenomenal success? 
I look at people like Mother Teresa and the impact that she had from a nobility standpoint, from a philanthropic standpoint. What was it about her that was monumental that took her to the places where she had all the success in the world? Uh, this is a pastor. I have a pastoral background. This is a pastor. His name is Joel Olstein. He built a church in Houston, Texas. And I, I looked at some of the things about him and thought, what about this guy really drove him to do something fundamentally different than anybody else? I, I looked at Howard Schultz. Howard Schultz built arguably one of the most phenomenal coffee companies in the world, probably the most notable. And, and it was something indicative in his life that was specific that took him to this place where he built the kind of company that he built. And that intrigued me. So I began to look at what that component was. What I found in all of them, it was this idea of vision, this insatiable appetite to accomplish something phenomenal and profound. It was, it was ridiculous. Bill Gates had this vision of putting a computer in every house in the country. And then that vision expanded to putting a computer in every house in the world. And if I had asked for a show of hands in here tonight, you would tell me probably you use at least one computer in your life. Is that right? Am I, is that true? Right? So he's been successful at executing his vision. I've actually told this story in Uganda. I told this story uh, when I was traveling in New Mexico. There's computers everywhere. He's executed on his vision in a really profound way. It's been monumental. Mother Teresa had a, a vision to rescue those that society would throw away, those that were less fortunate, those that had really difficult circumstances. She left a prominent wealthy family in Rome to begin the nonprofit and start the, the, uh, um, the orphanages in Calcutta, India. And she had this vision, this immense vision to change the world of these kids to change the life. She took in the sick and, and, and the children that were orphaned in a, in a very remote and difficult place. She had that vision to do that. People would travel from all over the world to come and spend time with her. She ended up winning the Nobel Peace Prize and she spoke before the, um, the National Prayer Breakfast and said, listen, stop killing the kids. Give them to me. I'll take them. Her vision just drove her to do something really amazing and really profound. Joel Osteen had a vision to well, actually, he had a vision to take and, and, and preach his message around the world. He took his dad's uh, relatively small 7,500-person church and turned it into this 40,000-person-a-week megaplex that operates out of Houston, Texas, and touches people around the world. His vision was immense. He just wanted to spread a message of hope. He wanted people to be better than they were yesterday and to have this idea that they could accomplish more. It was pretty profound and it remains. His vision is to change the world and have them have a message of hope. Howard Schultz, when uh, he was traveling to Italy, if you read his book Onward, you would see the details of his story. As he said, I was traveling and, and I, I experienced this coffee and, and it was in this atmosphere that just was overwhelming to me. And so I, I, I came back. So Howard has this vision to create that kind of experience all around the world. You know, he's not, I tell people, he's not selling coffee. He's selling an environment. He's selling a third space. He's selling an experience that he had and that he wants to replicate everywhere. I, I've had coffee. Anybody had a Starbucks coffee in there? Just out of curiosity. Just curious if, yeah. The remodeler's dream, right, is to have a cup of coffee before. I've had coffee all around the world from Starbucks, wherever there is one. And 
it's, it's exactly the same. It's the same experience everywhere you go. His vision is being translated throughout the world and he's making impact in the coffee industry, creating a space. Vision is profound. It moves us in ridiculous ways. It, it causes us to, to continue to move forward in, in really powerful ways and do things that other people aren't willing to do and make differences that other people aren't willing to make. When you have vision, it, it changes you. There's an old proverb that says that without vision, people perish. And, and that proverb isn't speaking to the demise of humanity, that, it, that if you happen to not have a vision, that you're going to end up in this casket and we're going to be holding a eulogy and a service for you. It, it's not that at all. The proverb is talking about that without vision, people become frustrated, become revolting, become complacent, disconnected, discontent. They're frustrated in their life. Without vision, people really don't have a direction. They don't, they don't really know where they're going, and it becomes very frustrating and rebellious. If you're a person with vision and you meet a person without vision, you recognize very quickly that that person has a lot of difficulties in their life, a lot of things that are happening. Many of your employees may be in this particular setting where, where you go, man, this is what we're trying to accomplish. They can't see it, and it becomes very frustrating, and, and they want to revolt, and they want to become just, just, you know, they're irritated all the time because they don't have vision. You know, vision is powerful. It gives us something to fight for in our life. It gives us, it, it, it's something that when I get up in the morning, I look out and I go, man, I, I'm willing to move forward in a powerful way. I'm willing to fight the battle. If you've ever met anybody with vision, you realize they will push down a mountain to make that vision happen. That they're ready to fight. They're ready to go for it every single day. But I, I like to say that, that without vision, you're actually disqualified from the battle. Without vision, you're disqualified to fight. There's an old story about two ancient armies that, that I was reading about. One was a good army, one was a, a bad army. And they were in, man, they were engulfed in some heated battle for an extended period of time. Just, man, they were, they were just crazy. At one point, the evil army was about to wipe out and annihilate the good army. Just about to take them out. And at that point, the leader of the good army steps up and he says, wait a minute. He says, wait a minute, please, please don't wipe us out. Make a treaty with us instead. Make a treaty with us. Let, let, just preserve our life. Don't, don't take us out. So the leader of the bad army, he stopped and he goes, okay, let me think about this for a second. Let me, let me try to come up with something that'll work, that I think will work with us. And he goes back to that leader and he says, okay. He goes, I have a deal. Here's the deal. He said, we won't wipe you out, but we get to put the right eye out of everybody in your army. Now, I read the story and I thought, well, that's kind of weird. I mean, that's a weird, I mean, I heard of economic embargoes and, and you can't trade on our land, but, but to put the right eye out of everybody in the army was relatively weird to me. But then I started thinking about the armor of that day and the way that the, the soldiers fought. So what they had is they had a shield on their left hand and a sword in their right hand. And without that right eye, they couldn't see over the shield to the oncoming enemy. So basically, this very strategic military officer was basically disqualifying an entire military by putting their right eye out. They were no longer qualified to serve in the military and therefore could not fight. See, the same thing happens to us. When we reach places in our life where our vision is challenged or our vision is impaired, 
We, we, it takes the fight out of us. It takes the, the willingness to get up and, and try to conquer. But when we can see clearly, when we can look out and go, man, I, I see it. I can see where I'm going. I can see what I'm doing. I can see where I want to be. Man, it puts something inside of me that no one can stop. No one can stop. As you're building your company and building your businesses and you're looking out and you see the, those spaces and you go, man, I can see what that looks like. It, it just puts something inside of you that puts a little pep in your step, so to speak, or a little fight in you that makes you want to conquer more than anybody else. I like the way Simon Sinek basically says it. He says in his book, Start With Why, he says, you must know your why. You must know your purpose or belief that causes you to do what you do. He talks about how when you have that why situated so squarely in you, it doesn't allow you to deviate in business. I meet business owners all the time. The, in my coaching practice, I talk to the, the leaders that I have. And when they come to me, it's that way. It's like I, I, I know I saw what I wanted, but, but I, I've forgotten. It's like I, I don't. And I begin to coach them to see again. And all of a sudden, man, we're on a running start to making lots of money and growing big companies. Napoleon Hill, the forefather of of the modern day personal development said, he calls it your definite purpose. He talks about having this concept, this idea so squarely put inside of you that you know what you've been put here to do. That you know that this is not just a job, this is not just something you got up one day and decided to do, but that your definite purpose is all about doing what you're doing every single day. He talks about it this way. He says, when people know their definite purpose, as they begin to move in that direction, it's amazing how the world begins to provide resources to fulfill that destiny. It's amazing how that acceleration takes place because I know where I'm going, I'm headed in that direction, and all the resources that I need, whether human or monetary, begin to find me as I'm on my way to my definite purpose. I read a study about, and this is, this is particular to your businesses, although with the exception of one I was talking to before this talk, uh, Dr. Jody Berg did a study at the Weatherhead School of Management, and she found this. She found that when a company or organization's mission is aligned with the employees and volunteers' personal purpose, engagement and performance become secondary. What she's talking about is that when not only you have a vision, but you align your, your employee's vision with what you're doing, performance is not something you have to worry about. Now, we're in an economy right now, except for obviously the one that I was talking to before, but where employees, that resource is hard to come by. We're in an economy where it is going crazy. In fact, one of my coaching clients is a contractor who was struggling to find additional superintendents. I said, you need to look right now because people are looking up. They're not necessarily making monetary moves. They're looking around going, who has vision and who's going to take my career in a forward progression? And I want to get on board with that. I want to get on board with a company that not only is looking out for my today, but looking out for my tomorrow. And they're jumping. I, I know they are because we've recruited three already. Solid quality superintendents that are running projects already. Right? So when you can align them, when there's a symbiotic vision, it propels the company and that individual to astronomical levels. It's when the vision is divided that you have problems. It's when you've got a vision, but nobody else sees it and nobody else knows it and you're not inspiring them to go with you. I've read multiple philosophers who have varying uh, opinions about where this idea of vision comes from. Uh, whether it, it be Buddha or Confucius, the, they have statements that are very similar 
to this one. This one happens to come from the Bible. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see. Other versions have said, Vision first begins in the heart, and then you see. Um, and so, uh, regardless of that philosophical bet, the philosophers all agree that vision is not something that's right here. You don't get up in the morning and you look out over your business and you see it here. This is something that you see deep, that, that, that's inside of you, that, that, that's making an effect on you. But it's interesting because in each of these statements, there's a condition here. The first is there's a promise that you're going to be able to see. Well, see what? See your future? See your destiny, see your focus, see your life in forward progression, forward motion, see yourself moving forward, see that place that you're supposed to accomplish and you're supposed to reach because you are who you are. So you're going to be able to see, but the condition is that the heart needs to be right. You see, one of the problems is that when you've got heart-related issues, I don't mean cardiovascular disease, I mean other related issues. Pure heart represents things like without contamination, corruption, or hindrance. Things that are attaching to you to hold you back and block your vision. I call those heart, is heart issues vision blockers. In my book, I write, I write about eight of them. Obviously, I can't talk about all eight of them tonight, but I am going to cover two. See, these vision blockers are things like life choices, habits, and activities. Not only with you, but the people that are associated with you. What are the things that you're choosing to do every single day? What are the... What are the things that are, are getting in the way and keeping you from that real destiny that you have for your life, that real purpose that's out there, that real vision that you see? Uh, I'm going to talk about strife and fear in just a moment, but lack of focus. Um, in the book, I call it double-mindedness, and you've probably met people like this that are, that are frustrated, they don't have vision, and they've got every interest in the world. Like they're, they're doing one thing today and another thing tomorrow and the next thing, another thing the next day and on and on and on. And you're like, dude, focus, like one thing. And you can see that happen over and over and over again, where people are just blocked because they're going in too many different directions all at the same time. Traditional thinking. This is about uh, culturalism and about, uh, about cultures that keep you thinking the way everybody else thinks instead of being able to have an independent thought, a creative thought. Traditional thinking uh, works a lot in, in cultural dynamics as well as socioeconomic classes. I did a study on and teach a class on breaking the mindset of poverty. You'd, re you'd be surprised at how many different places of position that poverty mindset is still existing, right? Because poverty mindset, when you're raised in that, uh, there's, this, there's this kind of cultural expectation that, that you're not allowed to reach beyond this because we don't do that here. Well, some of the group thing takes place the same way. It's like, we've always done it this way. We're going to do it this way. This is the way we do it. And you need to do it that way too. Instead of having the celebration of independent thinking and saying, look, I want to do this a little bit differently and I'm going to take a risk and go for it. Emotional pain. I talk about some of the, the hurts and pains that, that people have gone through in their life that are keeping them right where they are. Health. Um, this is a big one. I, I talk about how in your health situation, we, have, we want Superman and Superwoman bodies, but we're feeding at McDonald's. You know, there's a whole computer analogy that says garbage in, garbage out. It's the same way with our health. Health is blocking so many vision. I've talked to so many people who are in poor health or, or their bodies aren't functioning correctly, and they're like, Eric, I, I just don't know what to do. And you start to get the body back in alignment, 
And all of a sudden, creativity happens, energy comes back, focus happens, you see vision develop, and people are moving in powerful ways. It's amazing. And relationships. I talk about how sometimes those negative relationships can affect you and block that vision and keep you from really accomplishing the thing. You, you know, it's funny. I, 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 uh, I'll tell you this story. I just recently went through a health metamorphosis myself over the last, uh, I don't know, 85 or 90 days. I've dropped about 26 pounds, and I did it um, uh, using a specific diet plan. And it's amazing how many people uh, have said, wow man, you look fantastic, and how did you do that? And you tell them how you did it, really embracing this new lifestyle, and like, oh, I heard that's not sustainable. Well, I thank you. I am now an epic failure. I appreciate that. <laughs> Might as well quit and have a donut now. Or they go, wow, you've lost a lot of weight. How did you do it? And you tell them, and they go, mm, I heard that's not healthy. Well, it's a whole lot healthier than being 26 pounds heavier and high blood pressure and all that kind of stuff going on. So you've got all this negative thinking relationship. Sometimes it's, you need to toss those people out in terms of how their impact is on your life. But let's talk about a couple tonight because I picked out a couple that I thought would be appropriate. I hope this is not indicative of anybody's relationship. And if it is, we don't want to know about it. Strife is interesting. Strife is festering kind of under the surface. And so you might want to ask me, like, what is strife? Well, there's a really rigid definition. But basically, strife is about chaos and arguing, frustrations that take place. Where, where children are arguing with their parents, that's, that's strife. Where husband and wife are bickering, partners are bickering, that's, that's strife. It's also utter conflict. Right, making this, this, this working against one another in life and in business. It's this, it's this conflict that takes place. Anybody have conflict ever happen in your business? Please tell me I'm not alone. Right, right, never, never. Right, conflict is at work. And here's one of the, one of the critical things. Conflict, strife, is eroding your business. It's secretly sabotaging your business. There was a wise leader who happened to be on a journey, him and his nephew, and they were, they were trying to make it to this specific destination. And about halfway to the destination, things kind of stalemated. They didn't move any longer. They were spending an exorbitant amount of time sort of stuck in this one place, and they had a, a destination that they were supposed to arrive at and a time frame at which they were supposed to be there, and no progress was happening. And the uncle looked at the nephew and said, and said to him, listen, let there be no strife between our people. Don't, let's, let's not there, have there be anything. Notice that they were fighting and bickering and, and that they were trying to claim territory that they shouldn't have. It was just ridiculous. And the uncle said, listen, let, let's not let there be any fighting. Let, let's, let's stop the arguing. Because they knew, he knew that that strife was secretly sabotaging the vision to get to the destination. That chaos, that conflict that's existing in your employee ranks is literally eroding the progress that you could be making in your business. Arguing, fighting, and anger, basically it's distraction, lack of focus, and no energy. How many of you have been in a difficult situation, a conversation that has been relatively close to something that I'm describing, and you, please tell me if you have, because I need to know I'm with other humans in the room, because relationships struggle, right? Have you, today, somebody said today? Have you, have you ever walked away from that and you just feel completely depleted of energy? 
Like, it's like, what happened? I mean, I was, I was on fire this morning, and now I have nothing, right? Imagine what's going on when your folks are supposed to be producing, when you're supposed to be producing, and you're allowing this, this evil thing to get involved and sort of steal the energy out of your company. Forbes did an, uh, a research project on this a couple of years ago and was trying to find out how much is it costing us to have arguing and conflict in our businesses. Like, is there a number that we can put on this? And what they found is that the average American worker spends about 2.8 hours a week engaged in some sort of conflict and not productive. Now, that number represents $359 billion in paid hours in the United States. It's eroding, and it doesn't include any loss of sales if they happen to be a salesperson, the coworker that they're fighting with, because you know there always has to be two to tango. I, I've not met a person yet that has been arguing with themselves and in this equation, right? I know I shouldn't have done it, shouldn't have done it. <laughs> not seeing that guy. They're probably out there. It also doesn't take into, a, into account any customer impact that may have uh, eroded due to the conflict that was taking place in the employees. So working on strife, working on uh, uh, eliminating this conflict is powerfully profitable for your business. Basically, all of that results in missing the target. All of that results in, in I'm headed somewhere and it's going to be very difficult for me to get there when there's people arguing and fighting, when I'm arguing and fighting in my business. I'm going to list these out quickly. Causes of conflict are all anger, I'm, I'm ridiculing other people. There's hatred or emotional dislike. I'm gossiping, selfishness, the way you talk. Sometimes we don't even understand the way that we sound when we say something, and it's causing strife in that relationship. I know uh, at times in my life, my wife has been very uh, gracious, and we go, babe, you gotta, that did not sound good. Like, you gotta change how you say that, because I can come across a little direct, a little curt, a little forceful, a little demanding. Anybody else do that? Is that just me? Am I, all right, right. Uh, my, so my tongue, pride. Uh, I, I've worked with this person just recently. Never can be wrong. I am gold, and you should know it. And so this whole idea of I can never be wrong, I don't have the graciousness to say, listen, I, I understand that, that I may not have been correct in this, so pride gets in the way. Quarreling, all of it really has a common theme. It's the person we look at every day. Right? We got to check us first because we are subject to all of those things and it's eroding our productivity in our business. So a number of years ago, I was managing, I got assigned to this office and I was the new manager there and I had five women that worked for me. This office had a relatively decent reputation of being able to produce. But I got into the office and I began to create this epic vision. This has been my mantra in the banking community. I love it. So my vision for my offices that I lead is that it's so profound an experience that when you come in and do business with us in any way and you walk out, you literally stop and say, wow. That was a bank. Like, I wanted to emotionally move you. Like, I know it's finances, bored. We gotta have some sort of creative ability in our business. I mean, come on. So I, I want that experience. I, I desperately feel that. 
that when people come in contact with us, that they are moved, that, wow, this was just a bank. But, wow, that was crazy. So I found out very quickly in this office that that dream was not going to become a reality. Because what I found out is that the people working there did not like each other. And I knew this because I'm, I'm not really smart, but I'm okay, right? They would come in and tell me, you know, I don't really like so-and-so. Or I've got an issue with this person. And I've got, oh my gosh, can you hear what so-and-so did? They were wearing a hole in the carpet coming in telling me about all the, and I could feel the tension when I would stand in the lobby. It was just, it was just tense and it was, you know, I don't know that the clients necessarily noticed but I could feel it, it was uncomfortable, I didn't wanna be there, it was horrible. I tell you this story because when you have this kind of situation happening, you've gotta take some action to correct it. Let me tell you what I did. Because that branch ended up becoming one of the most profound operating offices in our company. We were number one five years in a row after this. But let me tell you what I did to fix the strife because there was definitely strife in this office. This is bold, and I, I want you to know I've survived it, so you can rest assured it's okay. So what I did is one night I had a mandatory meeting, because strife is not okay in my life anywhere, right? I don't like it. it. It's eroding everything. Had a mandatory meeting. I told these ladies, okay, I want you to call your husbands and babysitters. You're not going to be home on time tonight. We're going to have a mandatory meeting. I want everybody there. Everybody was there on point. I got them around the conference table, and I said, okay. Here's the vision for this office. This is what we want to create. And I cast my vision as epic as it was, as grand as it was. I cast it before them once again. And then I said, we're never going to reach this, and I'll tell you why. And they go, why? And I said, because you don't like each other. Excuse me? I said, yeah, you don't like each other. And I know you don't like each other because, Sue, you told me you have an issue with, uh, with uh, Kate. And Kate, you told me that you have an issue with Jenny. And Jenny, you told me. I mean, like, you guys are all complaining about each other to me. And I got to tell you right now, this is going to stop right now. And they're like, well, seriously? And I'm like, yes, here's the deal. While we're bickering, we can't be the best that we can be. While we're arguing and fighting, we can't be the best we, were gonna, we can be. And so I believe I've got a little, I've got a Hispanic in me, right? It's a familia. We're going to be like La Familia. I can talk about my mama, but don't you talk about my mama? You know, that kind of thing going on, right? We will die for one another. Like, that's what we're going to be here. And we're not leaving here tonight until that takes place. And I just shut up and stepped back, sat back in the chair. I got to be honest, it felt like an hour went by and silence in the room. It was the most uncomfortable, I mean, just horrific, dangerous. I, at one point, I thought, okay, they're going to lynch me. Like, I'm, I'm out, you know, my wife's going to have to collect a life insurance policy. It's crazy. And all of a sudden... About It had to have been five or ten minutes. I don't, I don't know for sure, but, but it seemed like forever. All of a sudden, Sue goes, well, well Kate, I don't really not like you. And, and Kate goes, well, I don't not like you either. And then all of a sudden, Jenny was going, well, I, well, I love you guys. I thought we were just joking. And, and then one of the other ones was like, well, 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 how did this happen? I'm, like, I'm just sitting back going, I have no idea what to say at this point. Like, it just happened. So like 30 minutes of this went by. All of a sudden, tears are happening. They're standing up. They're embracing and hugging. I'm like, what in the what? And I'm like, I, I cannot say anything because I will ruin the moment. Shut up, Eric. And I just stood and watched this kind of transpire. 
Now, I'm not suggesting to you that you get all your construction workers embracing one another on a job site. <laughs> I am, however, telling you that you've got to take action when it comes to dealing with strife, that you cannot let that just sit out there and erode your business, that, that there's something that's got to take place. So what, what I've put together is three things that you can do to help uh, offset, take action to to offset any sort of conflict that's taking place in your businesses. The first one I, I call human reconciliation. See, someone who is all about serving other people and serving humanity finds it very difficult to fight with them, finds it very difficult to argue with them. Many of the times, businesses will find grand success if they simply get their employees serving other people. If you become a person that serves other people, all of a sudden, it becomes an amazing culture that people want to be attracted to. Uh, a second one is having a generosity of spirit. Give, give, give. Time, talent, resources. It's not just about writing a check. It's about raising funds for something. My wife and I have a foundation that we started in 2010. We have four countries that we go to some of the most ridiculous places because we believe in giving and supporting and giving our time, talent, and resources to make a difference in the world. I cannot stand humanity suffering. And so I have to do something about it. Well, I find it very difficult to fight with humanity when I'm trying to fix them. Like, that's a hard thing to do. And so when you get people giving of their time, talent, resources, it transforms their mentality. They become better working for you. They become better at what they're doing on their job. They become a different person with a different mindset that's willing to go to a different, different level in a different place. And encourage them to have strength and conviction. Stand for something that they believe in that, that's profound, that, that's strong, that, that keeps them moving in a powerful direction. Don't let them waver back and forth and get caught up in the whimsical aspects of life, but encourage them to have a focus to move forward. Danny Thomas said, he said, success has nothing to do with what you gain in life or accomplish for yourself. It's what you do for others. Danny Thomas had an incredible view of humanity that he wanted to affect them in a powerful and positive way. And so he, he formed a nonprofit, has made profound effects on all of humanity. Dr. Ben Carson says happiness doesn't result from what you get in life, but what you give, right? What you give back, what you're able to contribute, the initiatives that you get your people involved in. And then when you're encouraging them to have strength of conviction, Encourage them to be like a lion that's willing to stand steadfast in the midst of prey, in the midst of drama, in the midst of challenge, and just move forward. So that's, that's how to conquer strife. I want to talk to you about one more. I want to talk to you about overcoming fear, and then I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up here. This is, this is interesting. It's amazing to me as I talk to people at various levels of success that, that people are afraid of stuff. Like there is, I have... I've talked to people who are afraid of public speaking. Like if I asked you to come up here and give a speech like this, you would be like, uh, some people would just panic. People are afraid of birds. I have a friend that's afraid of birds. Let a bird fly in here, he's bolting out the back door. People are afraid of spiders. They're afraid of going outside. There are these overwhelming fears that grip us in life and keep us from moving our life forward. Uh, Dr. Philip Holder is a psychologist that said fear in some extreme cases can cause tunnel vision, distorted depth perception, and, uh, and color perception issues. That, that if I get so afraid of something, it literally can affect my vision. 
Vision can become that thing, or, or excuse me, fear can become that thing that, that, that really starts to blind people and not allow them to move forward. They're afraid of success. People are afraid of success. I don't know what it looks like to exist at that level, and therefore, I don't know how to get there, and I'm not going to go there because I don't know what that atmosphere looks like. Now, in life, there are obviously healthy fears and unhealthy fears. There are some that are healthy. Our body is built in a physiological way that it's to preserve my life and keep me from going in bad directions. And so there's things like the fear of getting annihilated should keep me from walking in front of a bus. Like if, if I'm standing in the street and that's coming, I should want to live enough that I jump out of the street. Fear of an intruder, fear of dying in my house should, should want me to escape if an intruder is in there. So I have this self-preservation that rises up and keeps me there. Uh, we tell our kids all the time, Don't, you're going to get burned if you touch that stove. Fear of being burned should pull my hand back from a hot stove. These are rational, normal, healthy fears that keep us alive and healthy. But there are some unhealthy fears in life. This one is not me, but it could be me. I have an unhealthy fear of getting my blood drawn. Now, it is not just a normal, casual fear. I couldn't put the picture up with the actual needle going in because I wouldn't be able to finish the speech if I did that. Like, I literally pass out. When there is a needle that... I, sir, don't look at me like, that's not nice. <laughs> like, if a needle was headed my direction, let me tell you what happens. It's not rational, it's not healthy, but what happens to me is that I feel like all of my spirit is escaping out of that hole. And it's all flowing, and so I'm passed out. I can't handle it. It's been that way since I was in the military. Sad story. I, was, I served in the United States Army. We had to dig foxholes to protect the troops and serve on guard duty. And it was all training, but when I would get in the foxhole with a partner, they always put you in with somebody, I would tell the guy, I'd say, listen, I just want to let you know, I know this is training, but if this were for real, I just want to let you know, if we're together and I get shot, let me die. Because if you get shot, you're going to die. I mean, that's, I was trying to be honest. I was trying to help him understand, look, this is not, you've not been dealt a good set of cards here. You've got me. And if blood flows, we're done. Just saying. Some people have an unhealthy fear of mice. My, my wife actually suffers from this syndrome. She, uh, if, if a mouse were running over there and she actually caught a glimpse of it, she would literally begin to levitate off of her chair up into the middle of the air and float to the nearest high surface that she could find. It is this overwhelming, and you know, women usually in the room usually go, that's not unhealthy, that's normal. Then things are evil, they come after you. It actually happened one time, we were in, living in a house in Tacoma, and uh, I saw a mouse run across the kitchen, and I thought, uh-oh, this, this, is, this is not good. We were sitting at our dining room table, and Sandra was sitting right here, and, and I saw the mouse, and then saw that she saw the mouse, and then looked over, and she's literally floating in the air. <laughs> and I thought, oh my, now I'm a business guy, so here's what I said. I said, oh my gosh, you think we can duplicate that experience? We could sell tickets and like make a whole lot of money on this. This, this would be great. No, that wasn't wasn't a smart move. 
But people have these irrational fears. Some people have irrational fears of heights. Standing atop of a building or on some of the scaffolding that's maybe on your job sites would freak some people out. It would freak me out. I, I don't like it very much. I, I actually have climbed, but, it's, but I know that people are traumatized by these experiences, and it's crazy. But everybody is afraid of something. This guy I told you about earlier in the presentation, he built a church of 40,000 people a week that come, and he speaks. He has a fear of public speaking. Literally did not want to take the job. When he was offered the job, felt like his vision was bigger than his fear, pushed forward, and actually has to memorize his speech because he cannot stand in front of that crowd and deliver it extemporaneously. He has a trauma. Whenever he's on an interview or on camera, he has to write out anything that he says. His fear is existing today. He does not like speaking in front of people. Mark Zuckerberg has a fear. His fear is personal security and safety. And so he has this tremendous fear of, of, of that people are going to try to take his life. And so he has more bodyguards than anybody else like him. He just is tremendously afraid that people are going to attack him. But there's a way to overcome fear. I, I've been using this principle of just jump in my life since I was 19 years old. Because fear does not get to exist. Fear does not get to limit me, doesn't get to keep me from doing what I'm supposed to do in my life. And so I, I got this principle. It's something that I've been living by. Let me, let me tell you how it goes. I was 19 years old. I told you I was in the army. I was stationed in South Korea. In South Korea, you get the opportunity to volunteer for various different training classes and expeditions. And one month, I was there for a year, one month, I volunteered to fly down to Chejido Island and learn how to repel. Anybody ever repelled in here before? Yeah. I learned how to do that, military style. So I was at this class, and uh, I, I don't know why, but I, at 19 years old, I didn't put it together that if you're going to learn to repel, that means that you have to go from somewhere to somewhere. And, and so I, I didn't put that together, but I went to this class anyway, and I started to learn the, the different aspects of the repelling team. There's three different positions. The first one is the guide. And so that's the guy at the top in the military style. I've never done it outside of the military, so bear with me. But it's the guy at the top that's guiding the ropes and making sure that the soldier does not dangle in the middle of the cliff. There's a guy at the bottom called the belay. And he is responsible for keeping the rope straight on the bottom and make sure that the guy comes down and is healthy. And then there's the repeller. Well, in this class, it was for a week, the first three or four days were fantastic. Man, I was learning how to tie these ropes. I was learning how to do all these jobs, and I was amazing. Like, it was so good. I was tying them fast, and I was learning how to do all the calls and all that kind of stuff. It was amazing, and it all took place from the safety of a classroom. But on the fourth day, they decided that it was time for us to put what we had learned into practice. And so they took us out to what I say in the book. Now, it may not quite have been this high, but it looked like a thousand foot cliff like I walk out there I can still remember my hands sweating my heart beating I'm panicked I don't know what I'm gonna do it's ridiculous like I'm looking at this going oh my god what what am I gonna do well they put us through the ropes we had to do each of the positions I was an amazing guide in the army you have to call out call signs on on repel on belay and you're just calling out making sure everybody knows what's going on it was great I served as a guide I served as a belay and then it was my turn to repel Standing at the top of the cliff, the drill sergeant is right about where Mike is from me. I got, they got me all roped up and ready to go. And he says, okay, it's your turn. So I remember stepping out to the edge of the cliff and looking down 
and being frozen, like I could not move. And in the in military, you actually hear better if they yell at you. So he started yelling at me. He actually started yelling at me and telling me, Eric, just jump. And I'm frozen. I'm freaking out. I'm standing there. I can't move. I'm sweaty. And he goes, Scroggins, just jump. Everything's going to be okay. And I don't know why I had this thought at 19 years old, but I literally remember standing there looking down going, okay, government issue soldier right there, government issue soldier right there, government issue equipment here. Chances are things are not going to be okay. <laughs> like this is going to be a problem, and I don't really know why, but I remember standing there, and he goes, Scroggins, trust your training. Everything is going to be okay. And I looked at his face, I looked at his eyes, and I realized, okay, this guy, this guy's got my confidence up now. So I started the process of rappelling. And I, I, now in rappelling, you don't go down like that, you go down backwards. And so I turned around and I did what every self-respecting trained soldier would do. I started to do the, the exercises. Okay. I was looking good. I wasn't really doing anything because that's not like part of it, but, but I felt like, okay, delay, delay, delay. After a few minutes, I jumped off this cliff. And I remember on the way down, I mean, I was freaked out, but I remember on the way down just gaining so much confidence and so much pride, so much power, so much freedom that I had actually done this. And so I've always in my life remembered that when I'm facing something challenging, when I'm up against something that I don't know, I don't understand, I don't know if I can do it, I don't know if I'm going to accomplish, I just jump. I just take the risk because you don't know. And I just jump into it and, and trust the training, trust the experience that I've had, and let that guide me on the way down. So this concept has lived with me for quite a while. It's actually one of the things I had to do when I wrote the book, because there's a fear that goes along with that. And I just want to pause for just a second and tell you, I wrote this book, Vision Blockers. There are six others that I've covered in the book. It's caused me to just jump into coaching and into helping people move their businesses from point A to point B and really accomplish some great things and actually to stand on the stage and deliver this kind of speech to you. Just jump will change your life and change the life of your employees if they can just learn to get off the cliff and start gaining that power on the way down. I'm gonna tell you one more story and then I'm done. I call this run to the roar. There's a story about old lions. Old lions have some of the most ferocious sounding roars of any species, gripping. But when they get older, they become too feeble to hunt. They can't catch the prey. So the pride will position them in tall grass like this, and they'll position them off the corner, and the young lions and lionesses will go chase the prey into the direction of the old lion. When the prey begins to get close, the old lion will let out that ferocious, loud, incredible roar and scare the prey right in the direction of the young lions. So the concept that we can learn from that behavior is that when I'm afraid of something that screams so loud that I can't do it, that is so challenging that it looks like it's monumental, if I just run to that loud voice, if I run to the thing that, that is scaring me to death, there's safety. If the prey had run to the roar, they would have been fine, but they ran away and they were caught. In our life, it's the same way. Running to the roar, running to that loud sound will keep you in safety and allow you to conquer great things. Great things I want you to see from today that there is a success and a destiny ahead of you. There's something for you to accomplish. 
You have been created for greatness. I love what Ronda Rousey says. She says that no matter how intimidating the competition or how fierce they may seem, nothing gets the right to beat us. Nothing gets the right to conquer me. And Henry Ford says, whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. I love that if you get your mentality focused on the things that you're supposed to do, you are gonna accomplish great themes. I'm Eric Scroggins, thank you so much for being here and listening tonight.